We're going to be learning in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, the third piece in Hilchus Malva Velova. This is Perak Yotes Halacha Ches. And this is a discussion of a fairly convoluted case in the Rambam where there is a lender and two different buyers. And Rab Chaim is going to explain basically how to try to answer the view of the Rambam, which seems very difficult. And the Raivet asks four questions on the Rambam. So Rab Chaim is going to try to explain the view of the Rambam. The Rambam writes, Machar Halova Sadel Aloke. If someone borrows money and then they sell one of their fields to another buyer. So that property is leaned to the lender. It's part of the repayment package. And now he sold it to someone else. Now the first buyer resells the property to a second buyer. So now there's a lender, a borrower, a first buyer, and a second buyer. The cost of a malvelokeach rishon dinudvarim ainli imcha the kanumiyado. Now the lender had written to the first buyer, I'm not going to take this property away from you as part of my repayment. And they did a Kenyan, so they did a physical action to finalize that. So this is now an unusual situation because the lender cannot collect from the first buyer, but he could collect that field either from the borrower himself or from the second buyer buyer who he never agreed to not collect the field from. So the Rambam rules, So the lender can take that field from the second buyer. And then the first buyer turns around and takes it back from the lender. Because the lender had agreed not to collect it from the first buyer. So once he goes ahead and takes it from the second buyer, so now unusually the first buyer takes the field back from the lender. So now the second buyer turns around and takes the field again from the first buyer, because he sold it to him. Now, once the second buyer has it, so Balchov so then the lender can now collect it again. The Chosrin Chalila, so it's just going to keep going back and forth. It's a catch-22. It's a totally circular situation. They're all going to keep recollecting it from each other because the lender owes it to the first buyer, the first buyer owes it to the second buyer, and the second buyer owes it to the lender. So it's just going to keep going around and around and around until they make a deal. So they need to figure out some way of dividing the field. The same thing would happen for a woman with her ksuba. If the husband owes the woman a property and she writes to someone that she won't collect it from him, and then there's two purchasers, so that's going to create the same circular situation until they come up with an arrangement to divide the property. So that's how the Rambam understands this halacha when there's a lender and two purchasers. One guy purchased it from the borrower and then he sold it to another one. So according to the Rambam, there's now a circular situation and all three of the parties need to make an arrangement together. So that's how the Rambam understands this case. Now the Ravid disagrees with the Rambam and he he has some strong language. He says, This is how the Rambam is interpreting the case of a lender and two purchasers. But the Ravid then says that this is the biggest mistake he found in the whole Mishnah Torah. And interestingly, Rab Chaim omits that phrase and he just goes to the questions that the Ravid asks. So the Ravid has four questions on the interpretation of the Rambam. The first question is that there are two ways someone can sell a property. Either with achrayus, which means responsibility. So it's like a warranty that if the buyer loses this property, the seller will compensate them. And the other way to sell something is without achrayus, with no warranty. Says the Ravid, the Rambam's halacha only applies if the first buyer sells the field to the second buyer with a warranty. So then the second buyer can recollect the field afterwards from the first buyer. But if there's no achrayus, so then the whole halacha is not going to apply because once the second buyer loses the field to the lender, that's it, they're done. They don't recollect the field from the first buyer. Now, the case in the Mishnah where it discusses this whole situation sounds like it's talking about in all cases, whether the field was sold with achrayus or not. 
So the Raivet says, In the Mishnah, there's no limitation of this halacha only to a case where the first buyer sold the field with Achrayus. And it also just says, and so too in the case of a lender. So from the language of the Mishnah, it sounds like this case is similar to the previous case where there was no distinction whether the sale was with Achrayus or not. So the simple reading of the Mishnah indicates that this halacha applies whether the first buyer sold the field with Achrayus or even without Achrayus, whereas the way the Ram is explaining this halacha, it should only apply if the field was sold with Achrayus. That's the first question. Second question is that the Mishnah rules that in this case, all three parties, so the lender and the two buyers, all need to come to an agreement together. So the pshara, the agreement is between all three of them. But the way the Rambam understands this halacha, it's really only two parties that are dividing the field, the lender and one of the buyers, because one of the buyers got the money. So either the first buyer still has the money or he already returned it to the second buyer. But either way, one of the buyers is not really involved in this situation anymore. And it's only the lender and one of the buyers, whoever doesn't have the actual money, who divides the field. So that's the second question. Why is the pshara, the agreement as to how to divide the field between all three when one of the buyers has the money and is not involved in this situation? Third asks the Raivid that there really shouldn't be a pshara at all. Because if we go through the way the Rambam interprets this halacha and we go through the equation, so the lender takes the field from the second purchaser. Now, the second purchaser goes to the first purchaser and takes his money back. So now the second purchaser is out of the situation. He's done. He bought a field, lost the field, got his money back, and now he's out of the whole situation. The first purchaser now comes to the lender and takes the field back. Now, the lender had already agreed not to collect this field from the first purchaser. So now the whole situation is over. That's it. The first buyer has the field. The lender agreed not to collect it from him. The second buyer is out of the situation at this point. So the whole thing comes to a standstill. There is no circular situation. Why, according to the Rambam, is the second buyer returning and taking the field back from the first buyer? Why not just take his money and be gone and be done with the situation? So that's the third question. Fourth, the Raivet asks that there should be no way for the lender to collect the field from the second buyer to begin with, because obviously he can't collect it from the first buyer because he agreed not to collect it. Now, when he comes to collect it from the second buyer, so the second buyer should be able to counter to the lender, Ishaskis Shaskis, if you don't collect this field, then fine, we'll just leave everything. But if you insist on collecting this field, then I'm just going to return it to the first buyer. So I'll just give the field back to the first buyer. And then anyways, you won't be able to collect it. So the second buyer should be able to push off the lender by arguing that there's no real way for the lender to collect this field because he could just return it to the first buyer and then the whole thing will be over. The lender can't collect it. So why is the lender able to collect from the second buyer to begin with? So those are the Ravid's four questions on the Rambam's interpretation of this case. So not only are the Rambam and the Ravid disagreeing about how to interpret this case in the Mishnah, but the Ravid disagrees practically with the ruling of the Rambam in this case as well. The first two questions of the Ravid were against how the Rambam interprets the Mishnah, but the second two questions were against the Rambam's practical ruling in this case. So let's say there is a lender and two purchasers. According to the Rambam, we know it becomes a circular situation because the lender takes it from the second buyer, the second buyer takes it from the first buyer, and the first buyer takes it from the lender. But according to the Ravid, that is not true. There is no circular situation in that case because one of two options happens. 
either the lender can't even collect it to begin with from the second buyer. So the first buyer keeps the money, the second buyer keeps the field, and the lender loses out because he can't collect it from the second buyer because of the claim of Ishaskis Shaskis. Or alternatively, the lender could collect it from the second buyer, but then the second buyer takes back his money from the first buyer and he's done. And then the first buyer takes the field from the lender, so then he's done and the lender loses out the money. So either way, according to the Raivid, the lender ends up losing the money in this case and the field either ends up with the first buyer and the second buyer gets back his money or the field ends up with the second buyer and the first buyer keeps the money. So that's according to the Raivid, it's clear that the lender is the one who ends up losing the money and it's not a circular situation the way the Rambam said it would be. So that is the debate between the Rambam and the Raivid in this unusual case. So now in order to explain the approach of the Rambam, Rab Chaim, as he always does, explains the conceptual basis of this halacha. And he begins with a question. Both the Rambam and the Ravid agree that the first buyer is able to recollect the field back from the lender. So if the lender takes it from the second buyer, the first buyer could go back and take it from the lender. Even though the Ravid disagreed with other points in the Rambam's halacha, he did not disagree with that point. But Rab Chaim asks, how's that going to work? Because once the first buyer sold the field to the second buyer, he's out of the story. What right does he have to come back to the lender and recollect the field? And even though the lender agreed not to collect the field from the first buyer, so he wrote, Dinudvarim Ainli Imcha, he's agreeing not to collect the field from him. But that's a very limited agreement, only that the lender is not going to collect from the first buyer. But he's not giving up his rights to collect from this field. And that's obvious because he collects from the second buyer. So obviously the lender retains the rights to collect from this field as opposed to the first buyer. Once he sells the field to the second buyer, he's lost his rights to the field. So once that happens, how does the first buyer have any right to go back and collect the field again from the lender once he already sold it to the second buyer and he seems to have lost his rights to the field. Now, says Rab Chaim, don't answer that when the lender writes to the first buyer, I won't collect the field from you, included in that is not only that he's not going to collect the field, but that he won't cause a loss to the first buyer. So if the first buyer is going to lose money, then the lender becomes responsible for that. And that's exactly what happened. Because since the first buyer is going to have to compensate the second buyer, so he's going to end up losing money. So that's why he's able to return to the lender and collect the field. Says Rab Chaim, that is not a good answer because first of all, the logic seems difficult. It does not seem that the lender is agreeing to prevent any loss to the first buyer. He's only agreeing to the more limited idea that he won't collect the field himself. But second of all, there's an even bigger problem with that solution because according to that approach, the lender shouldn't even be able to collect the field from the second buyer to begin with because Because since that is going to create a domino effect, which is going to cause the first buyer to lose money, so the lender shouldn't be able to collect it to begin with based on his agreement not to collect the field from the first buyer, which really meant that he wouldn't cause a loss to the first buyer. So if we understand that statement in the broader way that the lender is agreeing not to cause loss to the first buyer, even though that would explain why the first buyer is able to recollect the field from the lender, but it creates a new bigger problem, which is why can the lender collect the field from the second buyer to begin with? Because that was going to cause the first buyer a loss. So Rab Chaim says that explanation is not going to work. All the lender agreed to is not collect the field from the first buyer. So now we're back to the question, what right does the first buyer have to recollect the field from the lender?
So says Rab Chaim, in order to answer this question, we have to say that there is a conceptual idea here that any time a person sells a field with achrayus, so there's a warranty that they're going to have to compensate if the buyer loses the field, and then a lender comes and does collect the field. So the buyer recollects his money from the seller. So now the seller had to return the money. So according to Halacha, we view that case as if the lender collected directly from the seller. So halacha cuts out the middle person, the buyer who bought the field and then lost the field to the lender. The halacha views it as if the lender collected the field straight from the seller. Because that's the essential concept of selling something with a chrayus, a warranty. It's not just a technicality that the seller will return the money if the buyer loses the object. It means more fundamentally that if it turns out that that field belongs to a debtor, so there's a lien on the field. So it's as if the lender collected the field straight from the seller. That's what it means to sell something with a chrayus. So that answers Rab Chaim question because even though when the first buyer sold the field to the second buyer, he now lost his rights to the field because that's what a sale means. He sold his rights in this field to someone else. So now at that point he was done. But once the lender went ahead and collected the field from the second buyer, so now according to Halakh, it's as if the lender collected it straight from the first buyer, the seller. So that brings the first buyer back into the situation. Now the lender collected the field from him. So that's why he's able to turn around and recollect the field from the lender because the lender had agreed not to do that. So this conceptual understanding of the halacha explains how the first buyer is able to recollect the field from the lender. Now, Rab Chaim brings a proof to this conceptual idea from the Gemara Ba'metzia Tesvav. Amar Shmuel Balchov Goves Hashvach. The lender collects the field from the buyer, but not only the field itself, also any improvements that the buyer added to the field. So let's say someone buys a field and then puts money into it. So the lender of the seller can collect the field as well as the improvements. So Rava brought a proof to this halacha from the language of the document that a seller writes to a buyer. So if the seller sells the field with achrayus, he includes in the document that he will compensate the buyer if someone comes and takes the field from him. And he explicitly includes that the compensation will include inun v'amalehon v'shvachehon. All the work as well as the improvements that the buyer adds to the field. So it's clear, like Shmuel said, that the lender collects not only the field, but also the improvements, which is why the seller has to compensate the buyer for improvements as well. So the Gemara asks, what about a gift, the locus of Lehachi, where he does not include that language? So does that mean that if the borrower gives someone else a gift and the lender comes to take the gift as his compensation, he does not collect the improvements? So the Gemara says, Amar in yes, that would be the the case that in a case of a gift, the lender cannot collect the improvements that the beneficiary of the gift added, only the actual gift itself that he was given. So Rab Chaim points out that according to this Gemara, really the lender can only collect the actual object which the borrower sold or gifted to someone else. So the concept that a borrower can collect from the buyer is really inherently limited only to the object that was sold itself, not the improvements that the buyer put in there, if not for the fact that that's included in the document of sale, that the lender can collect the improvements also, and the seller will compensate the buyer. So that needs to be explicitly written into this transaction, because otherwise the default would be that the lender can only collect 
collect what the seller sold the buyer, nothing that the buyer himself added onto the field. And the Rambam himself makes this point later on in chapter 21. Why does the lender collect half of the improvements? Because the seller writes explicitly to the buyer in the document of sale, that I will compensate you for the value of the actual object, as well as any work, as well as any improvements that you add to this object. And I am responsible for all of it. And the buyer accepted that stipulation. So basically the default would have been that the lender can only collect the object that was sold itself, none of the buyer's improvements. But since there was an agreement that the lender could collect the improvements of the buyer, so that overrides the default halacha. Now, the reason for the default is because since the buyer improved things after he already bought it, so all those improvements, the added value came about in the ownership of the buyer, not the seller. Now, the seller is the one who owes the money to the lender, not the buyer. So any improvements or added value that comes about when the buyer owns it, the lender has no rights to that. The only rights that the lender should have is only to things that the borrower himself owns. But anything that the borrower didn't own, it belongs to someone totally different, this buyer, and in his ownership, this value was added so that the lender has no rights to collect. So that's the explanation for the default halacha. Now, what happens when the buyer and the seller stipulate to override the default halacha and that the lender is going to be able to collect not only the object itself, but the improvements as well. And then the buyer will turn around and recollect whatever losses he had from the seller. So the Gemara in Baba Basra Kufnun Zayin explains that the mechanism of how this works is basically the buyer is agreeing to sell those improvements to the seller and then the lender collects the whole thing because the seller owes him the money. So let's say the seller owes $100 to the lender and then he sells a field which is worth 90 and then the buyer adds $10 to the field. So now the lender collects that whole field, which is worth $100. The way it works is that the buyer is selling those $10 of improvements to the seller. Now that it belongs to the seller, so the lender is able to collect all $100 of the field. And then the buyer goes back to the seller and collects the $90 that he paid him originally, as well as the $10 of improvements that he just sold him. So that's how their agreement overrides the default halacha that the lender can't collect the improvements. So basically, there is no way for any object that never belonged to to the borrower that only belonged to the buyer of this field to be leaned for the lender. The only way that a field can be leaned to the lender is if at some point it belongs to the borrower, who's the seller in this case. So that's why the only way to include the improvements in the lien is for the buyer to sell the improvements to the seller so that now they belong to him and then they're included in the lien. But anything that never belonged to the borrower, it was always the buyer's, is not included in a lien and there's no way to include it in a lien towards the lender. But now Rab Chaim asks, how is this going to work? Because the buyer's improvements to the field are a davar shalom bala olam. There's something that came into existence after the sale of this field. And the general rule is that you cannot sell something that's not in existence yet. So how can the buyer agree to sell the improvements to the seller at the moment of the sale when they were not in the world as of that moment? And furthermore, there was no Kenyan. There was no acquisition of the improvements from the buyer to the seller because at this moment, the field belongs to the buyer and they never did another Kenyan, a physical act of acquisition. So how does the seller acquire the improvements? So says Rab Chaim very brilliantly that according to his conceptual formulation, that answers these questions. Because 
if the way this works is that the lender collects from the buyer and then the buyer turns around and gets back his loss from the seller, so then we have a question, when was there ever a transfer of ownership on the improvements? But the way Rab Chaim formulated this, the essence of the halacha is that the lender, it's as if he's collecting directly from the seller and cutting out the buyer in the middle. So that's why there doesn't need to be a Kenyan. There doesn't need to be an actual transfer of ownership of the improvements from the buyer to the seller. The very fact that the buyer agreed that the improvements could be collected by the lender. So now that the lender did show up to collect this field, he takes everything. And it's as if he's taking it all directly from the seller because we cut out the buyer in the middle. That's what it means, achrayus. So the lender is collecting the whole thing straight from the borrower, who's the seller. So even the improvements are included in the whole collection. Even though the improvements were done by the buyer, but now he's out of the situation, he's going to take his money and leave the whole scenario. So the collection is happening directly from the borrower. So any improvements of the buyer are included in the collection, even though there was no Kenyan, because at this moment, they are in the world. They're part of the field. And the seller, it's as if it's his field that the lender is collecting. So that includes everything, not only the field itself, but also the improvements. So according to Rab Chaim's conceptual formulation, we can explain how this halacha works, that the seller, meaning the borrower, ends up with the improvements and the lender can collect it, even though it was not included in the original sale and there was no Kenyan. So that proves Rab Chaim's conceptual point in this paragraph, that when someone sells something with a warranty, the way Halacha sees that is not that they're going to have to compensate the buyer if they lose the field, but that if the lender comes to collect the field, it's like they're collecting it directly from the seller, the borrower. So that explains why the Rambam and the Raivid hold that in this unusual case where there were two buyers, the first one can turn around and recollect the field from the lender because it's as if the lender collected it straight from the first buyer and he agreed not to do so. So the first buyer is a player and has rights to this field, which he's able to then take back from the lender. So this conceptual formulation explains that aspect of the halacha. So now, having formulated this conceptual idea, in the third paragraph, Rab Chaim says that this idea is also going to answer the third question of the Raivid on the Rambam. The Rambam ruled that when the lender collects from the second buyer, so then the second buyer takes his money back from the first buyer, then the first buyer takes the field back from the lender, then the second buyer takes the field back from the first buyer, and it just keeps going around in a circle. The Raivid questioned that because he said that once the second buyer takes his money from the first buyer, he's now done. He's out of the scenario. The first buyer then takes the field back from the lender, and that should be the end of the whole situation. So there should be no circle. So that was the Raivid's third question. Says Rab Chaim, his conceptual formulation is going to answer that question. Because since we see it as if the lender is collecting straight from the first buyer, so the whole collection falls apart because he agreed not to collect from the first buyer. So once the collection falls apart, so then the second buyer could return to the first buyer and say, give me back the field because it was never collected from me to begin with. The whole concept of a of a warranty is only that if the field is actually collected, so then the buyer can get their money back from the seller. But that only applies when the actual collection went through. In this case, the collection gets nullified because it's like the lender collected from the first buyer, which he agreed not to do. So the whole collection is nullified. Once it's nullified, so then it's not a case of achrayus. It's a case where the second buyer lost his field for no reason. So now he returns to the first buyer and says, give me back the field. So that's why the Rambam says that this situation just keeps going around in a circle, it doesn't end once the first buyer
player takes the field back because since the whole collection was nullified, it's like it never happened in this case. So it's not a case of a warranty where the money stays with the buyer and they have no further right to the field. In this case, the second buyer still has a right to the field because the whole collection fell apart. So that's why this case is always going to be a catch-22. Because once the second buyer purchases the field, so now the lender is able to collect it from the second buyer. He has the right to the lien from the second buyer. So he goes ahead and collects it. But once he collects it, it's as if he's collecting it from the first buyer, which he has no right to do. So that now nullifies the whole collection. So the field can't stay with the lender. Now, it also can't stay with the first buyer because he already sold the field to the second buyer. So once he takes it back from the lender, now he has to return it to the second buyer. So neither the lender nor the first buyer can keep it. And the second buyer also can't keep it because the lender will just collect it from him. So there is no solution to this field. Neither one of these parties is able to keep it. So that's why the Rambam says it's totally circular. It just keeps going around and around between all of them until they make an agreement. So that's why, according to the Rambam, we do not apply the regular rule of a warranty of achrayus in this case, because we're not discussing who should get the money. The issue is not whether the first buyer has to compensate the second buyer. The issue is who should get the field, which hinges on whether the lender is able to collect the field for his debt. And that is unresolvable because he can't collect the field from the first buyer. On the other hand, the first buyer always has to pass it along to the second buyer and he is able to collect from the second buyer. So that's why according to the Rambam, there is no valid halachic solution to this case. And now Rab Chaim adds furthermore that using this framework, we can also answer the fourth question of the Raivid, which was why can the lender collect from the second buyer to begin with? Why can't the second buyer say to the lender, if you try to collect from me, I'm going to pass the field back to the first buyer who you can't collect from? from. So I have that same power that you shouldn't be able to collect from me either, because either way, the lender is not going to get this field. So the Ravid questions whether the lender could collect the field from the second buyer to begin with. So Rab Chaim answers, that we could say that the din udvarim ainli imcha, when the lender agreed not to collect from the first buyer, that's only for that specific sale. He's not agreeing to never collect this field from this person. He's only saying, I won't collect it as a result of this sale. But let's say 20 years down the line, after 20 people have owned it in the middle, now this person goes ahead and buys it from the 20th person. So there, the lender did not agree not to collect from him because because that's a totally different sale. So the dinud varim, the agreement, only applied to that particular sale, not subsequent sales. So now the Rambam ruled that this is a circular case where each person keeps nullifying the other person's ownership. So the lender takes it from the second buyer, then the first buyer takes it from the lender, then the second buyer takes it from the first buyer, and it keeps going around. But why should the first buyer be able to recollect this field once he already sold it to the second buyer? So we just said that the Dinud Varim agreement only applies to that particular sale, not subsequent sales. So why is he able to, after selling the field to someone else, go back to the lender and recollect the field? So again, Rab Chaim explains, based on his conceptual formulation, that it's not that the lender is collecting the field from the second buyer, and then the first buyer goes back and takes it from the lender. It's that once the lender tries to collect it from the second buyer, it's like he collected it directly from the first buyer. So the whole collection falls apart because he agreed not to do that. In other words, this is not a subsequent time that the first buyer is getting the field. It's all the same transaction. The first buyer bought the field, then sold it to the second buyer, and then when the lender tries to collect it. So it's as if he's collecting from the first buyer because of that first transaction. So it falls apart because of the agreement. So that's how the Rambam's circular case is going to work. Because in fact, when the lender tries to collect it, it's as if he's collecting it under the rules of the first buyer's sale when he bought it with the agreement of Dinudvarim that the lender would not collect it. But that is not going to apply in the Rivid's 
case. The Rivet is suggesting that the second buyer can say to the lender, if you don't leave, I'm going to resell this field back to the first buyer and then you won't be able to collect it. But that's not true because since that's a new sale, that's the second time that the first buyer is going to get this field. So the original Din Udvarim agreement would not apply to this new sale. So that's why the Rivet's suggestion is not a valid claim because if the second buyer says to the lender, if you try to collect this, I'll resell it. I'll give it back to the first buyer. So that's not an effective claim because even if he does that, the lender could still collect the field from the first buyer because again, he didn't agree to never collect from this person. He only agreed not to collect from them as a result of that original sale. But now in the Rivid's case, this would be a new sale that the first buyer gets the field again for a different reason. So then the lender could go ahead and collect the field even from the first buyer. So the second buyer's claim doesn't work and that's why the lender could collect from the second buyer. And again, Rab Chaim explains why this is different from the Rambam's case because since the halacha sees it as if the lender is collecting directly from the first buyer, so in the Rambam's case, the lender is trying to collect from the first buyer as a result of the first original sale where there was an agreement that he would not collect from him. So this answers Derived's last question, why the lender could collect from the second buyer to begin with. Why doesn't he just threaten to give the field back to the first buyer? So the answer is the Rambam's halacha only applies when the lender is trying to collect from the first buyer as a result of the original sale. But Derived is proposing that this would be a new sale back to the first buyer and there the lender's agreement not to collect would not apply. Now in the final paragraph, Rab Chaim turns to explain the Rivid's view. The Rivid had said clearly that once the lender collects from the second buyer, so now the second buyer goes back to the first buyer and gets back his money. But what does the Rambam hold about that? The Rambam never said whether at that step the second buyer is going to get back his money from the first buyer or not. So we could argue both ways. On the one hand, as Rab Chaim's been explaining in this piece, the whole whole collection is nullified. So the lender tried to collect the field, but it doesn't work based on how Rab Chaim explained it. So since the collection never went through, the first buyer doesn't need to return the money to the second buyer because that's a warranty if the land is collected and this land was never collected. So the warranty never kicks in. Or we could say the other way that since the second buyer lost the field, so how could it be that the money stayed at the first buyer, even though the second buyer lost his land. So it would end up in a strange situation where the first buyer could have the land and the money at some point. So maybe we just look at the practical element that since the second buyer lost the land, the first buyer has to return the money to him. So Rab Chaim brings a proof that according to the Rambam, the first buyer does not need to return the money because the Rambam said that the pshara, the agreement, is between all three parties. Now, if the first buyer returned the money to the second buyer, so the second buyer is not part of the agreement. So obviously, according to the Rambam, the first buyer does not return the money to the second buyer because of this idea that since the collection never went through, so the warrant never kicked in. So that is the view of the Rambam. Now, the Rivet clearly disagrees because he said explicitly that the first buyer does return the money to the second buyer. So the Rivet focuses on the fact that the second buyer lost the land, so that kicks in that the first buyer has to return the money. He writes, When the lender collects the field from the second buyer, he goes back to the first buyer, the and takes his money. So then the first buyer goes back to the lender and takes the field back. So that's going to end 
end the whole process right there because who's the lender going to go back and collect from? The first buyer he can't collect from because of the agreement. And the second buyer already took his money and left the whole situation. So according to the Ravid, because the second buyer was going to lose the land, he collected the money from the first buyer and that ends the whole situation right there because now it's just between the first buyer and the lender and the lender can't collect from the first buyer so he just loses the money. So from this line of the Raivid, we see that he holds in this case that the warranty, the achrayus, fully kicks in. Even though it might have been a circular situation, but still the warranty kicks in once the second buyer loses his land. And that's why the first buyer has to fully return the money. And not only does he fully return the money, but it even removes the second buyer from the whole situation. So the achrayus totally kicks in to the point where the first buyer, the seller, returns the money and that fully ends the role of the second buyer in this scenario. He's now out. Now, even though the Ravid also agrees with Rab Chaim's conceptual point, that's what he said earlier, that both the Rambam and the Ravid agree with this point, that when the lender collects from the second buyer, it's as if he collected directly from the first buyer, so the collection doesn't go through, so why should the warranty kick in? That's the whole idea in the Rambam, that the warranty doesn't kick in because there's no actual collection. So the way Rab Chaim explains this is that the Ravid differentiates differentiates between the first buyer and the second buyer. From the perspective of the first buyer, the whole collection is nullified because it can't be done at all. So from the first buyer's perspective, nothing happened. But still, from the second buyer's perspective, there is a collection because the lender did collect the field from him. So from the perspective of the second buyer, the warranty does kick in. So there's a split screen. For the first buyer, the warranty never kicks in because there's no collection. And for the second buyer, the warranty does kick in. So that's why the second buyer ends up out of the situation. He takes his money and now he's no longer involved. And the case is now between the lender and the first buyer. So the first buyer ends up with the field and the lender loses out because of the original Dinudvarim agreement. So that is the approach of the Ravid. And that's the point on which he disagrees with the Rambam. According to the Rambam, because there's no collection, there's no warranty. According to the Raivid, there's a difference between the buyers. For the first buyer, that is correct. There's no collection and no warranty. But for the second buyer, there is a collection and a warranty. So that explains the overall debate between the Rambam and the Raivid. They're both consistent with this overall conceptual view. According to the Raivid, he fundamentally agrees with a lot of the Rambam's framework. That in this case, the lender collecting from the second buyer is as if he collected directly from the first buyer. So the collection should fall apart. But the Raivid argues that even though the collection overall does fall apart, but still the warranty kicks in for the second buyer. So the second buyer takes his money and leaves the whole situation. So now the only case is between the lender and the first buyer. And of course, the first buyer is going to win out because of the agreement. So the lender totally loses out. So that's why according to the Ravid, it does not keep going around in a circle. The case does come to an end with the first buyer getting the land back. And that's the end of it. Whereas according to the Rambam, since the collection does not go through. So that means the warranty does not kick in. So the second buyer remains in the situation. He does not get his money and leave. So once the first buyer collects the field, now the second buyer takes it from him. So then there continues to be a circle all around until they come to an agreement. So this overall conceptual debate between the Rambam and the Raivid explains how they get to their different practical rulings in this case. So this is Rab Chaim's approach to explain this controversial and difficult ruling in the Rambam and where on which exact points he and the Ravid disagree and the conceptual basis for this whole halacha. The key conceptual point that Rab Chaim develops is that when something is sold with a chrayus, which means a warranty, so if a creditor collects this land, the buyer gets the money back from the seller. According to Rab Chaim, that does not mean that the creditor 
collects from the buyer and then the buyer gets compensated by the seller. But the halacha is saying that we view this as if the creditor collected the field directly from the seller to begin with. And then the seller has to return the money to the buyer. So that's how Rab Chaim formulates this. And based on that, he's able to explain how the Rambam applies that concept in this more convoluted halacha. Now, the Chazon Ish in his marginal comments on this piece disagrees with Rab Chaim's conceptual idea. And he argues that it's difficult to understand how it could be that the lender is considered to be collecting directly from the seller when the seller no longer owns the property. So the lender is collecting it from the buyer who now owns it. How could the halacha consider this as if he's collecting directly from the seller? Unless we're going to posit some sort of notion that there's almost a stipulation built into the sale that if a lender collects this property, so then the sale was nullified to begin with. So at that point, the property would revert back to the seller. Or alternatively, the sale is only effective up until such a time as the property is taken by a lender. So once the lender takes it, the sale comes to an end and it reverts back to the seller. So we'd have to say something like that in order to explain Rab Chaim's conceptual formulation, whereas the Chazon Ish is not sure about it because the simple understanding, of course, is that once the seller sells the field, if the lender collects it from the buyer, it's that the lender is collecting it from the buyer and then the buyer gets compensated by the seller. And the Chazonish also points out that the Gemarn Bometzia Yudal Ramad Aleph seems to go against this idea of Rab Chaim because it has this case where someone sold a field to someone else and then the lender of the seller is collecting the field. So the Gemara explains why the seller is able to go to court against the lender and the lender can't say this has nothing to do with you. Now, according to Rab Chaim, that it's as if the lender is collecting directly from the seller. So you don't need to explain why the seller can be involved in the case, obviously he's one of the parties. And similarly, the Chazon Ish also questions Rab Chaim's explanation for how the Shevach, the improvement that the buyer puts into the property could be collected by the lender. So Rab Chaim explained because since the lender is collecting from the seller, so that's automatically included as part of that collection. So the Chazonish questions how exactly that fits into the language of the Gemara, which seems to say that the buyer has to sell that improvement back to the seller in order for it to be collected. So basically the Chazonish questions Rab Chaim's conceptual formulation in this piece. Now Rab Yisr Zalman in the Evan Ha'azel, so he also has a question on Rab Chaim's formulation, which is that Rab Chaim himself said that you can't explain that the lender agrees not to cause any financial loss to the first buyer. So that's why the first buyer is able to retake the property from the lender, because if that's the case, then why can the lender collect from the second buyer to begin with? That is automatically going to cause a loss to the first buyer. So that was what led Rab Chaim to his formulation that when the lender collects from the second buyer, it's like he's collecting directly from the first buyer. But Rabbi Sir Zalman asks, doesn't that have the same problem? It doesn't seem like Rab Chaim's approach answers the question that he had on the other approach. It's the same thing. Since the lender agreed not to collect from the first buyer and collecting from the second buyer is the equivalent, it's like he collected from the first buyer, so we should be right back to the same problem. How can the lender collect from the second buyer to begin with. So these are some of the questions that the Chazon Ish and Rabbi Sir Zalman raise against Rab Chaim's formulation. Now, the Chazon Ish raises another issue. Rab Chaim explained the approach of the Rambam that since the lender never really collects the field, so the collection doesn't happen, so therefore the first buyer does not need to pay the warranty, the achrayus, to the second buyer. So that's why the field just keeps going around in a loop until they make an agreement between all three of them. So the Chazon Ish questions this from a practical perspective because since the first buyer never returned the money, so he still has the money. So why should he want to make any deal with the rest of them? He should just keep the money and that's it. So on a practical level, he wonders how Rab Chaim's framework is going to work. Why would the first buyer be part of their overall agreement when he was able to just keep his money? So this is sort of a typical debate between the Chazon Ish and Rab Chaim, where the Chazon Ish is more practically minded and Rab Chaim is more focused on the theoretical framework. 
Now, Rav Shach and Navi Ezri raises another major issue with this piece, which is that Rav Chaim seems to be omitting a mention of a key detail in the whole perspective. So Rav Chaim's dealing with this very convoluted case where there's a lender and two purchasers, and he's trying to account for all the details, but he's skipping over something very important, which is that the first buyer also has a seller. So the actual borrower in this case is actually the person in the middle who sold the field originally to the first buyer. And Rab Chaim does not seem to be factoring in that component of the whole case. So Rab Shach says that when Rab Chaim wonders why is the first buyer able to recollect the field from the lender after he sold it to the second buyer, why is he not out of the whole scenario? So there's a Simple answer because since the first buyer was sold it by the borrower, so once he lost the field, he now has a chrayus, he has a warranty against the borrower. So since he can collect his money from the borrower, so he's able to go ahead and recollect the field from the lender as part of his warranty against the borrower. So that would answer Rab Chaim's question at the heart of this piece, meaning Rab Chaim does not seem to be fat factoring in this aspect that the first buyer also has a warranty against the borrower, which is a simpler, more technical answer to his question. Why is the first buyer able to recollect the field from the lender without having to offer his whole conceptual approach? Now, similarly, Rabbi Isser Zalman in the Evan Azal quotes his grandson, Rabbi Schneer Cutler, asked a related question that Rab Chaim said that when the lender collects from the buyer, it's as if he collected from the seller directly. So now that should undercut what Rab Chaim says at the end of the piece, that if the second buyer were to sell back the property to the first buyer as a new transaction, so then the lender could collect from the first buyer. That's how Rab Chaim explained the Rambam would answer the question of the Ravid, that since that's a new transaction, the lender is able to collect from the first buyer. But Rab Schneier asked, Putting this together with what Rab Chaim said earlier, that it's as if the lender is collecting directly from the seller. So when he goes to collect from the first buyer, it's actually like he's collecting from the borrower, who's the real first seller, not like he's collecting directly from the first buyer. So now that should undermine all the sales because it's as if the field goes all the way back to the borrower originally, and now the first buyer does get the field because of that first transaction, not because of the later transactions. So now again, the lender can't collect it. So this is a very clever question from Reb Schneier, again, applying this idea that the first buyer also has a seller, which is the original borrower. So in the back of the Or Olam edition of Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi, they quote that Rav Hutner had a marginal comment on his Evan Ha'azal, where he suggested that the answer for Rab Chaim is that it's not going to work that the field goes back to the borrower and then back to the first buyer. So now the lender again can't collect it, but rather this case is going to be parallel to Rab Chaim's Catch-22, where the field keeps going back and forth. It can't settle at any one person. Because if it goes to the first buyer, so now the lender can't collect it, which means that in fact it did not go to the borrower. So now again, the lender could collect it. So basically, Rab Chaim would say that even though it is true that the field goes back to the original borrower and then from there to the first buyer, so technically the lender can't collect it, but there's a catch-22 where on the other side he is able to collect it. So that's why the Rambam rules that this is not a good claim to protect the second buyer from the lender's collection because the second buyer can't keep the field as well.